U.S. midterm elections are over, but the red wave that was trumped up as a red tsunami barely lapped ashore. The red wave was premised also upon political science models that say at the end of the day, you know, if the president's unpopular, if the economy's churning, if it's a midterm election, the president's party is going to do badly. Well, that's a model, but models are simplified pictures of reality. Even though the partisan newspapers in 1800 said it, at the end of the day, John Adams did finally concede and say, I lost. Um, I lost the election. The parties were ideologically mixed. Over a period of roughly 50 years, America has gone from a bell curve to a bimodal curve, or if people don't understand what I'm referring to, a double hump camel's back. What's happened is the two parties- Wait, it's that bad? Yes, yes. But the two parties have ideologically sorted themselves out. I'm going to invoke my hero, Willie Sutton. Willie Sutton's a famous Mm -hmm. bank robber. And we was asked the question once, why do you rob banks? He said, because that's where all the money is. Willie Sutton's a genius. <laughs> that's if, great. If less than 2% of the population in the United States actually makes political donations or contributions. And if we siphon it down even more, mm-hmm. there's only about 200 donors in the United States that matter. We have so few swing districts. Again, I point out to people in the 1970s, Roughly one-third, 120 out of the 435 congressional seats were swing. That is, at any given election, they could go to the left or the right, Democrat or Republican. Those swing seats were the drivers of political compromise. They forced Congress to negotiate because neither the Democrats or Republicans solidly alone could drive their agenda. You know what there is now? 30 or so swing seats in Congress. We are much more polarized than we've been, again, in the last 50 years. Now, the good news, if there is, is that some of this polarization is going to start to end in five to 10 years. Did you know that in the last 20 years, the United States has been the most secularizing democracy in the world? Among America's silent generation and later baby boomers, some data suggests that 90% say they believe in God and that they're Christian. Among millennials and Gen Z, however, barely have identified with religion or Christianity. Of course, you wouldn't know it by the fervor of our conservative politics, religious movements, and the Supreme Court's decision against abortion. And this secularization of America is important because it may profoundly change our polarized politics. Hey there, news peelers. Today's November 18, 2022, and this is Adele, host of the History Behind News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors from around the world who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this Peel in the History Behind News, the histories of many countries we read, watch, and hear about in our news media. For example, whole series on Ukraine's, Iran's, Russia's, and China's histories. And of course, several series on the U.S. economy, culture, politics, environment, science, and much more. I'm committed to making in-depth history that are researched and written by scholars 
enjoyable, and accessible to everyone. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Ms. Carrie Lake, the Republican nominee in Arizona's governor's race, was seen by most as a highly effective communicator. And in important Republican circles, her name was mentioned as a possible heir apparent to Mr. Trump, or perhaps his running mate. But she lost. According to exit polls, Ms. Lake lost independents by 7 points and moderates by 20. She also lost 9% of self-identified Republicans. And here's the thing. Ms. Lake was running in a historically red state, in a year in which American wallets and purses are a lot thinner, due to high inflation, of course, which has made the sitting Democratic president very unpopular. In fact, most election deniers lost in last week's midterm elections. Although Republicans won the House majority by a thin margin, they failed to take the Senate, or take command of state politics, including offices of the Secretaries of State. So what happened? My guest, Dr. David Schultz, answers that question and also explains how our Congress is not a national legislature and how its differences with parliamentary systems makes it more susceptible to the pressures of local politics. We also talk about intra-party conflict and extreme politics, politics that reflect the political segregation of America's neighborhoods. One aspect of American politics that personally perturbs me is money. Okay, I donated to the campaign of our local congresswoman, but how can the trickle of a contribution from an ordinary citizen like me withstand the deluge of money from billionaires who funnel their funds through super PACs? It's not even a real competition here. We ordinary Americans don't stand a chance against big donors. In this episode, my guest tells us how bad it really is and why is it that not much is being done to fix this problem that is threatening our democracy. By the way, regarding super PACs, I came across an interesting opinion piece this week in the Wall Street Journal by Carl Rove. If you remember, he was a Republican political consultant that served as George W. Bush's deputy chief of staff. According to Mr. Rove, Mr. Trump is rigorously raising funds for Herschel Walker's Georgia Senate race runoff in December. But a whopping 90% of the donations were going to Mr. Trump's super PAC, not to Mr. Walker's campaign. After Mr. Walker's campaign publicly complained, Mr. Trump lowered his take to 50%. In this episode, we also talk about Mr. Trump's business experience and how it prepared and informed his actions and decisions at the White House and its aftermath. Dr. Schulz is a distinguished Hamline University professor of political science and legal studies, where he teaches across a wide range of American politics classes, including public policy and administration, campaigns and elections, and government ethics. He's also a professor of law at Hamline, as well as University of Minnesota Schools of Law, where he teaches election law. He's the author of more than 100 articles and 30 books. His most recent book is presidential swing states, and his forthcoming book is Generations in American Politics. To learn more about Dr. Schultz, you can visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Dr. Schultz and I peel the history behind this news. Dr. 
Dr. Schultz, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Now that the 2022 midterm elections are over, I got to ask you this question. In our history, have we ever um, experienced anything similar to the growing power and, and presence of election deniers? We've never had anything probably to this degree. Have we had more polarization and conflict? The answer, of course, is yes. People, whenever they turn to me and say, isn't this the most polarized, conflictual ever in American history? I say, I think the 1860 election and the Civil War beats the heck out of this. (laughs) uh, Hopefully we'll never experience that. Never experience it. But think about it. At that point, the South, the Confederacy actually recognized that Abraham Lincoln had won. And they left the race. They basically left the union at this point. I mean, we've had occasional, let's say, carping and denying about election returns and contesting it. But to the degree that we're having right now, uh, or at least that we had, let us say, four years ago, and we're still in the middle of right now, this is really, really relatively unprecedented in American history. Uh, what really, what I sometimes tell people is that the most important election in American history was 1800. 1800. Wow. Okay. So Adams, Burr, and 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 Jefferson. Is that what we're Jefferson, talking about? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Jefferson defeats um, John Adams. It is the replacement of the Federalist Party with well, what what's called the Democratic Republican, which is now the Democratic Party. And yes, there was a little, let's say, you know, elbow greasing and a little bit of um tossing and turning. But guess what? At the end of the day, the losing party conceded the election and said, we lost fair and square, and we're going to try to beat you again in four years. And what that established in the United States was an important principle of democracy, that the loser concedes, recognize the legitimacy of the election, and says, we're going to hope to beat you the next time. What 216, or more importantly, I should say, what 220 was all about was a break in that tradition, where Trump and his supporters basically denied the legitimacy of the election. We've never really had anything like that in American history. In the past, you said we have had some narratives similar to election denying in different sort of aspects, I guess. It's a matter of degree. I'm using your words here. How did these carpings, these denials or whatever, big lie, whatever you want to call them, how did they die out? Did Americans get tired of them? I, I think a couple of things. One is is I think America. I think some of the supporters or advocates of it essentially die out. They go away. They've usually been sort of fringe at the end of the day, and they've lacked a podium or a microphone to be able to sort of you know push their views. I think that's generally what's happened here. But what's made this different now? I'm going to say is what it's the social media. It's the capacity now to search out others and to be able to. Um, articulate your views and spread them across the country. But I also think that's what's different about this election is the, in 2020 was the fact that the denying came from where? The president of the United States. That That is what's really unusual about it. Because usually- when The biggest bully the, pulpit, right? The biggest bully pulpit in the world. And when we've had it in the past where people have sort of said, I don't know if the election is fair or something like that. It was never given- the degree of legitimacy that a sitting president of the United States would give it. And I think that's what, take that along with the the capacity 
of of having a big microphone that is the social media Mm -hmm. Um, and also i'll have to say having a partisan press now to be able to advocate this in the case we're talking about here fox news replicating that in their media accounts social media replicating it the president um, of the united states at that point donald trump making these statements put all that together the elixir is for a level of election denying that again we just haven't seen in american history but what i think is so characteristic about american politics in the age of donald trump has been sort of this consistent ability to really sort of spew out lies and and get away with it what was it the washington post at one point charted out and said what 10,000 lies during the the trump presidency Dr. Schultz, I, I want to interrupt you and bring out a historical, uh, really, fact here. We talked about social media, right, and how it's empowered different um, factions in all aspects of life, not just politics. But we had that. I'm just going to use your example. In the 1800 election, there were different newspapers that were entirely partisan, and they were sort of their social media and spewing <laughs> just lies. Uh, I've read many books on this. So is one difference between now, the, the, you know, the the 21st century post-social media and let's say 1800 is just that now it's, it's on steroids. Everyone can do it. Is that the difference? I think steroids, but also at the end of the day, even though the partisan newspapers in 1800 said it at the end of the day, John Adams conceded. John Adams did finally concede and say, I lost. Um, I lost the election. Now, that's important. So combination of, of, let's say, the elites, let's say in this case, John Adams, the elite saying at the end of the day, I lost the election. But now take the fact that we have an elite here. Donald Trump um, didn't take that position, said I lost, but it was cheating. Many other Republicans said they lost and cheating. And now take the media and put it on steroids, to use your phrase here. It becomes incredibly easy to circulate the big lie. Briefly here, there was a study that was done by MIT psychologists a few years ago that wanted to look at the social media and what travels further and deeper, truth or lies. And they found by studying Twitter that lies travel further and (laughs) deeper and denser. Um, And and. And I think that's really sort of part of what's going on here. It's the ability of being able to circulate to more people more quickly, the ability to to spew out a lie than we saw back then. I mean, I I point out to my students, you know, and, and it's not quite related here. You know, when the the storming of the Bastille took place in the in the in the 18th century, it took six weeks for people in the outer regions of France to realize that the French Revolution was going on. Um, oh, that is so interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Even in 1800, um, it took an incredible amount of time to circulate information. What are we looking at? Local newspapers. There's no telegraph. There's no telephone. There's no television. There's no radio. It was just hard to reach a lot of people with a story. Let's go back to our bully pulpit uh, discussion. Uh, how much is the person of Mr. Trump a factor? And let me let me let me qualify that. I'm talking about his life experiences in two different perspectives. One is 
his business upbringing was not in a big U.S. corporation with sort of deeply entrenched and complex system where he had to follow the rules in order to climb the ladder. He worked for his father and you know other corporations, but there were smaller corporations. And also, I note that until his presidency, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think he served our country in any official capacity, right? I, I, I don't think he did. So how much of the, how much are these two life experiences a factor in how Mr. Trump has dealt with the 2020 and now the 2022 midterm elections? I think it has a lot, a lot to do with everything in the sense that even though in 2016, some people were enamored by the idea of saying, oh, he's never been involved in politics. He has no skill in politics, but he was a CEO. That makes him what? Able but to he was not a normal CEO. He was he, he was not a CEO of, let's say, General Electric, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. He, he basically was the CEO of a family-held corporation. Um, yeah. But even if he were, even if he had been, let's say, the CEO of a, of a publicly traded uh, corporation like that, the skill sets that you need to be president are very different than the skill sets that you need to be a CEO. Remember, at the end of the day, in a corporation, especially a family-held corporation, Trump can sit in his in his seat and say, to ape his line from his show, you're fired, you're hired, do X, do I. <laughs> As president, you can't do that. There's this wonderful book called Presidential Character by Richard Neustadt. All right. And what Neustadt argues, the power of the presidency is about the power to persuade. Um, it's about recognizing that there's this nasty thing called the Constitution, checks and balances, separation of powers. Other people who are elected, they have their own constituents. They get to do what they want. There's this famous scene in Richard Neustadt's book at the beginning where in 1952, they ask Harry Truman, can you give Dwight Eisenhower any advice on becoming president? And remember, Dwight Eisenhower, five-star general, head of head of the Allied Command. Yeah, yeah. And, and Truman says, poor Ike. He's going to start ordering people around, and no one's going to listen to him. Uh, he's going to think, <laughs> oh he's my gonna God. Think, that is so he's going to think it's like the military, and yeah. nobody will pay attention to him. And what I'm getting at here is going into it, Trump on one level didn't have the skill sets to deal with the rough and tumble of politics. He was used to basically barking out commands in his own company. Or remember, was it 15 years or 16 years he had The Apprentice? Um, yeah. He was just barking out the phrase, you're fired or something like that. And so what I'm getting at here is that he he was never in a situation where he really had to um, deal with controversy had to deal with disagreement. He dealt with a bunch of people who basically kowtow to him. Interesting. Um, did the fact that a red wave did not materialize last week in our midterm ele elections suggest that perhaps Americans dislike the instability that election gen deniers inject into our uh, election system? Do you think, I'm, I'm, I'm talking, uh, referring to the potential of chaos, the undermining of democracy. Do you think this was on the mind of the electorate? Yeah, I I think the electorate is exhausted. And what I mean by that, I described this to somebody the other day, is that have you ever had a friend who you love dearly, but the person is high maintenance, and at some point you just get kind of like, 
I can't do this anymore. And, <laughs> We're and, not going to hang out with them anymore. Yeah. And 216, 218, and 220 were all exhausting elections for America. And if we look at what happened in 2022, what so far we have one Senate seat that flipped. That's it. Almost all the members of Congress who ran for re-election won, which is typical. Almost all the governors who ran uh, won re-election. For the most part, the American public did not do a wholesale changing out of incumbents or make a change. I think what they wanted to say is at a time of exhaustion, at a time of, of let us say, economic tur turmoil, let's just stabilize and go with what yeah. we have at this point. And I, so I think that I think there's a lot of truth to that. And so I think the red wave was premised also upon political science models that say at the end of the day, you know, if the president's unpopular, if the economy's churning, if it's a midterm election, the president's party is going to do badly. Well, that's a model, but models are simplified pictures of reality. And in some cases, Guess what? Other things matter, such as the feeling of the public, um, such as what campaigns, quality of candidates, messages and so forth. Yeah, yeah. And I think part of what we learned here is that the public was, I think, exhausted, maybe scared after January 6th and said. This is about democracy. This is about the future of American democracy. Let's let's not elect the election deniers. And in fact, of all the secretaries of state who ran in the country last week as election deniers, every one of them lost. I think this oh, says wow. something. Everyone lost. Now, at the county level, oftentimes where counties administer elections, we don't quite know what happened here. But I would say, first, the big winner, American democracy, big loser is Trump and the election deniers. Now, there's another reason why I think the election deniers um, – um, um, or why election denying, I think, has somewhat died out after this election. Not totally, but somewhat. If you're the Republicans and you've now received, I think, what, five or six million more votes than Democrats in congressional races. If you are on the verge of taking back the House of Representatives, if, um, if you're the governor of Florida and won a blowout election, kind of hard to say, I got reelected, but the election was stolen. Um, I think... <laughs> Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I think I think two years ago, when the de when the Democrats basically um, cleared the table, so to speak, it became easier for Republicans to say stolen election. It's a lot more nuanced now than it was two years ago. Yeah, I mean, if the election is rigged, then how are you winning? Um, we'll be back after a short break to talk about extreme factions within our political parties. Last year was the 400th anniversary of Thanksgiving, so it was in the news. Naturally, we peeled the history behind it. I had a conversation with Dr. David Silverman of George Washington University. He's an expert on Native American and Colonial America histories. He told me the story of what really happened on that first Thanksgiving in 1621. I also want to highlight two more episodes about the histories behind America's politics, as if you haven't had enough already. But indulge me for a moment, please. What if Mr. Trump loses the 2024 election and once again denies that he lost? How do we resolve that dispute? Earlier this year, I had a conversation with Professor Edward Foley, who is the Chair in Constitutional Law at The Ohio State University 
where he also directs its election law program. He told me how America resolved its election disputes in the past. It's an unfortunate story of how we may be regressing to the 19th century when we resolved our election disputes through violence, bullying, and all sorts of shenanigans. It's also the story of how our election system is, quite strangely, producing winners who only receive a minority of the votes, even in highly disputed states. Finally, to better appreciate our country's democracy and what may happen if we let polarized politics run amok, I encourage you to listen to my conversation with Dr. Claudio Fuentes, who joined me from Santiago, Chile. We Americans can learn a lot from Dr. Fuentes' explanation of Chile's history of polarized politics. He tells a powerful story of the fragility of democracy, but it's also a story of its resilience. You see, Chile had a relatively long history of established democracy before it lost its democracy in a decade of highly polarized politics and political violence. Remarkably, Chile worked its way back to democracy and has remained a democracy in spite of constant election swings from the left to the right and then back again. Links to my conversations with these scholars are provided in the detailed caption of this episode. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Dr. Schultz. Dr. Schultz, is there anything peculiar about our political system that empowers extremes within our parties? There's a few different things to be thinking about here. One of them is the fact that that we basically have a winner-take-all election system. Um, And if we think about it, it starts really at the presidential level and works all the way down. We get to elect one president of the United States. So at the end of the day, somebody wins, somebody loses. And given the fact at the presidential level, in 48 out of 50 states, it's winner-take-all for electoral votes. What do we have? A whole bunch of winner-take-alls. If you get 51% of the vote, or do you get 80% of the vote, or you get 37% of the vote in a state, but it's still more than everybody else, it's 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 winner-take-all. Oh, oh if has... I may, okay, I just want to make sure I, I'm following you, Dr. Schultz. So you say, for example, in a state, state XYZ, if it has tech, 10 electoral votes, even if you get six, like, you know, six of them, you get all of them, right? Is that what you, you mean? Your, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, okay. winner, it's winner take all. We don't proportionally okay. allocate them out. Uh, we have single member districts where where it's basically one person gets elected from it. So we have we have a political system, and and this is going to take me about a minute to sort of describe it here. Please We've do. got a political system that's different than parliamentary systems. You know, parliamentary systems like in Europe. What you have is oftentimes a system where it is um, first a national legislature or a national parliament, mm-hmm. and they have proportional representation. If you're the, I don't know, the red or the green party or the purple party, and you get 20% of the vote, you get 20% of the seats. So we kind of allocate it out. Here, what I want to point out to people, we don't really have a national legislature. Congress is really not a nationally elected body. The House is, re- is elected in 435 separate seats across the United States, spread across 50 states. The Senate is 100 seats um, distributed across 50. We really do not have one election. And, and where I'm going here is combine the fact that we really have a localized Congress elected from different districts and 
And this is the part that's so fascinating about American politics right now is that we are so polarized that Democrats and Republicans don't like to live in the same neighborhoods. Um, they, we have geographically sorted ourselves out and thus we've created overwhelming Republican, overwhelming Democrat. We've got a few, very, very few in the between. And what it's done now is take the geographic distributions, the polarization, combined with a political system that is essentially winner take all. And this is the recipe for what we're seeing right now. Let's let's parse that apart. First, um, I'm really intrigued by, by, by um, your explanation of localized Congress. I followed close to what you said, but I want to understand a little bit better. So let's say in, in, in the United Kingdom, each member of parliament runs in his or her own district and she or he gets votes from that specific district. They don't get votes from the entirety of the United Kingdom, right? They are right. also local. It's kind of a localized parliament. How's that different than our local elections here in the U.S.? Well, well, what they have there also is because it's a parliamentary system, mm. you have to cobble together enough of your people to be able to form a majority who picks the prime minister. And so let's say that let's say the um, the the conservatives only get 30 percent of the vote. Um, they have to now find another 20, you know, 20 percent to form a majority. And, and that's important because they are a parliamentary system um, and you and you have to put cobble things together to form now not just a working majority in parliament, but to eventually pick the prime minister and so forth. We are a separation of power system. At the end of the day, I don't get elected if I'm running in Minnesota by people who are living in Wyoming, et cetera, et cetera. Very similar to the British, but combine the localized elections with the fact that it's, it is at the end of the day, Winner take all in all of those districts or all the congressional districts across the country, and the fact that it's a separation of power system, put all those components together. That that is what distinguishes us from the, the British system because we are what? Again, separation of power is not a parliamentary system. I see. Um, you but I also but I also want to come back and say that what we're experiencing in the United States. It's, it's, at least right now, is something very, very unique in terms of, A, the degree of polarization that overlays with geography. Now, yes, we've, geography or region has always been, has been a factor, but geography now is, is, is really one of several big divides. As I tell people when I teach my American politics class, I write on the board and say that America, the, the points of conflict and division in American politics have been what? Race, class, gender, region, religion, generations, and now increasingly also uh, education in terms of points that we divide over. And what I'm trying to capture here is that we've got a political system that was supposed to be designed for a high degree of political consensus. In fact, we had a political system that our framers were hoping that political parties would not emerge. Yeah. That yeah. the whole idea that the electoral college, the person who got the most votes would become president, runner up would be vice president, was an indication of that. The fact that George Washington in 1796, as he does his farewell, says, 
I worry about the rise of political parties as a problem. But we adjusted. For many, many years, we had what political scientists call coalitional political parties. There were conservatives, moderates, and liberals in each party. So now what we have, this is what, how I tell my students, we first have jerry-rigged political parties into a pol constitutional system not designed for parties. Now we are creating European-style political parties to try to operate within a political system not designed for European-style parties. That is highly ideological parties. Put all those together, we've got a political system that's not working anywhere near what our framers had designed. You know, we've had intra-party conflicts in our in our political system for, forever. At what point did did sort of extremism begin within political parties? Is this um, do do different factions create extremism so that they gain followers and they gain audience and and attention? Is that what's well, happening? Well, what's happened here, again, I have to do another story. Take us back 50 years ago. Uh -huh. And if I were to do survey research 50 years ago, let's say the 1970s, and plot American public opinion on a graph, and I want to rank public opinion from the most conservative to liberal, you know what American public opinion looked like 50 years ago? A bell curve. The vast majority of the public converged towards the center. Mm -hmm. And the two political parts, if we draw a line down the middle, we would call that the median voter. The centers of the two American political parties were very close to one another. And given the fact that the two parties were towards the center, I'm going to invoke my hero, Willie Sutton. Willie Sutton's a famous mm -hmm. bank robber. And we was asked the question once, why do you rob banks? He said, because that's where all the money is. Willie Sutton's a genius. <laughs> that's if, great. If you knew 50 years ago and you were the Republican and Democratic parties and the most of the voters were in the center... What kind of candidate would you nominate for office? A centrist. Think about 1976, Jimmy Carter, Gerald Ford, both centrists. Yeah. The parties were close to the, the ideological center of the parties were close together and the parties were ideologically mixed. Over a period of roughly 50 years, The Economist has a great graph that shows this. America has gone from a bell curve to a bimodal curve. Or if people don't understand what I'm referring to, a double hump camel's back. What's happened is the two parties- Wait, it's that bad? Yes, yes. But the two parties have ideologically sorted themselves out where we now have, by voting records in Congress, for example, the most liberal voting Republican votes more conservatively. Uh, actually, I rephrase it. The most liberal voting Republican, uh, the most, I get this right there, okay. The most conservative Democrat voting is still more liberal than the most liberal voting Republican. There's no overlap in voting anymore. American public wow. basically has sorted itself out. Geographically, we have sorted ourselves out where Democrats and Republicans live in different neighborhoods, live in different districts, et cetera, et cetera. And what I'm painting here is because the parties have pushed themselves further, further apart and the centers are further apart, Willie Sutton is still a genius. Because fewer people identify as centrist, it doesn't make sense to nominate a candidate in the center. Instead, on the Democratic side, but certainly far more on the Republican side now, if, if I were to run as a centrist within my party and say, 
if elected, I promise to negotiate with the other side, cut deals. I'm going to get primaried from the right as a Republican or primaried from the left as a Democrat. And what it's done is help push us further and further apart over time. Because wow. why? we have so few swing districts. Again, I point out to people in the 1970s, roughly one third, 120 out of the 435 congressional seats were swing. That is, at any given election, they could go to the left or the right, Democrat or Republican. Those swing seats were the drivers of political compromise. They forced Congress to negotiate because neither the Democrats or Republicans solidly alone could drive their agenda. You know what there is now? 30 or so swing seats in Congress. There are so few seats wow. really in play that, that now Republicans or Democrats on their own without swings can basically drive the agenda. And what this does is it empowers the fringe. It empowers the swing. Uh, it empowers the, the outliers. Okay. One more story I'll tell you here. I've been telling the story several times that because we've sorted ourselves out so much, um, again, Democrats, Republicans live in different districts. They live in different areas, different neighborhoods. We, of course, have heard what the big split. Um, it is what MSNBC for Democrats. It is it is Fox for Republicans. It's even better than that. You tell okay. me what car you you tell me what car you drive. I know how you're going to vote. I'll do the easy one. If you tell me you drive a Subaru, I know exactly how you're going to vote. No debate about this whatsoever. Or better yet, in the last two or three elections, best predictor of how an area is going to vote, it's location um, proximate to Whole Foods, Chick-fil-A, or Cracker Barrel restaurants. Nearly perfect Is this for real? <laughs> I am serious. I am serious. Geography, partisanship, and our consumer preferences overlay. And what I'm painting here is this is how polarized we are, how divided we are. And because of that, because party centers have moved farther and farther apart, proverbially, the fringe gets to wag the dog. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, we'll be back <laughs> after a short break to talk about super PACs and voter ID. We'll be back. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the History Behind News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you. Dr. Schultz, this was an expensive midterm election. Tens of millions of dollars were spent on U.S. Senate and House races and even at local uh, contest. And, and this is the trend now. We're in this. No one is thinking right. that 2024 is going to be, you know, less expensive or anything like that. Um, what role do super PACs play in all of this? They play an enormous amount. And you're, 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 li you're lying about saying millions. Let's change that to billions at the end of the day. I have seen estimates that the 2022 election cycle was an upwards of 18 to 20 billion dollars. I say B with wow. a B. Um, uh, wow. uh, billion with a B. By far, 
the most expensive midterm elections in ever in American history, and might very well be, including presidential, the most expensive in history. And the reason wow. why I mention all of this is because a lot of this money is coming from super PACs and not from candidates. My estimates. Uh, first, are if I now, might interrupt it for a moment, just tell us what super PACs are. Just okay. give us a yeah. Go ahead, please. Okay. So I want to make a distinction here. Three distinctions: candidate committees, PACs, and super PACs. Okay. Candidate committees are the are the committees that candidates form when they run for office. So if Jane Doe says I'm running for Congress, she files her papers, you know, appropriately, you know, with the state files with the Federal Election Commission, and she's now allowed to raise and spend money. And there's some rules regarding how she can raise and spend money. Political action committees have been around for a while. They really started to take off in, let's say, the 1980s. And, and they can raise money um, to, to, um, to support uh, uh, candidates um, in terms of running for federal office. They can expend independently in terms of being able to, to spend money. They, uh, they can, in some cases, give money to federal candidates. What super PACs are mm -hmm. is something interesting now. In 2010, the U.S. Supreme Court decided Citizens United. And what Citizens United said was that limits on the ability of corporations and also unions to be able to expend money for the purposes of influencing federal elections um, um, violated the First Amendment. And it freed up, for our purposes, corporations to be able to expend money on behalf of candidates to be able to, um, uh, uh, to run for elections. Where super PACs emerged was shortly after Citizens United, because PACs were oftentimes limited, especially if they wanted to give money to candidates, if they took any of their money from, from corporations, they, they couldn't do that. They were limited. Well, with super PACs now, if you've got super PACs that are being formed where they now um, might be able to, uh, in some cases, if they don't take money from corporations, they can still give to candidates. But let's say they're not going to give to candidates. Let's say they're going to spend on behalf of candidates. So I'm not donating to the campaign of Jane Doe. If I now um, am going to spend on behalf of candidates, I can take this money from corporations. I can now spend unlimited amounts of money, including unlimited amounts from corporate treasuries to spend on behalf of candidates or to oppose them. And what, the, what, what Citizens United opened up, along with a couple of other decisions, was the ability to flood more money into the political process at all levels of, of campaigns. And that's what we're starting to see now. Actually, we've been seeing this for the last almost, what, 12 years now, is the acceleration of the amount of money in politics as a result of Citizens United, allowing, in this case, super PACs, who, who now, as long as they're not giving to candidates, federal candidates, can really take unlimited amounts of money from almost any source. At a, at a foundational level, isn't this a bit scary? Let's say Amazon decides to create a super PAC or fund a super PAC, and here's you go. Here, here's a ten billion dollar check. Go, you know, support this position or or fight against this position. I mean, it, it the citizenry, the you know, regular people, you and I can't match that. You're, you're absolutely correct. I'll make it even better. 
what if Elon Musk decided to spend $44 billion, uh, um, instead of buying Twitter, decided he wants to buy the American political process? Uh, could his corporation, uh, could he create a corporation and do that? Yes, he could. He could drop his entire amount. You're using Amazon. I want to use Musk and Twitter because I think it's yeah, yeah. a great example. It here. is a fabulous he, example. So what? But, How but come nobody is? Go ahead, please. Go ahead. But, but the point being is that there's there's only about less than two percent of the population in the United States actually makes political donations or contributions. And if we siphon it down even more, I actually did a couple of stories with reporters from the New York Times in the last few years. Mm -hmm. There's only about two hundred donors in the United States that matter. We're down. Wait, to come a, again. Two hundred as in about two hundred donors. 200 mega donors that absolutely matter. And in this election cycle, I think there was a story in the Post or in the, in the Times that said, we're probably down to no more than maybe 25 or 30 mega donors that are really, are really the players in the game. And connecting back to your question before, candidate committees, candidate spending now is a very small portion of the amount of money that's spent in campaigns. Um, it's, 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 it's certainly less than half. Um, and in many cases now, it's, it's a very small amount uh, of, of it. Candidates have lost control of their campaigns because PACs and super PACs are, are, are the ones who are really driving campaign messaging and spending. And again, within that circle, a very small number of people. You're hitting on a really important topic here because when people were saying after January 6th, the election deniers are are the are the are the threat to American democracy. I still say the threat to American democracy is both the the significant um, economic inequality in America and the ability of a certain small number of donors to basically be able to to weaponize free speech and spend unlimited amounts of money to influence elections. How come people are not up in arms about this? Uh, look, I'm. You can see my face. I'm getting frustrated here. Yeah. I mean, how come this is not a bigger issue, political issue? Well, it should be. If you ask the American public in surveys questions about money in politics, about eighty to eighty-five percent of the American public says Citizen United was wrong, and we ought we need to do something to get money out of the political process. Yeah. However, if you ask people what are the most immediate questions facing their life, it is the economy. It's raising yeah. their kids. It is health care, et cetera, et cetera. So oftentimes what? The immediate outstrips the important. And here, for most people, the, 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 the money in politics isn't a, is a burning issue, but it's probably what? Fifth or sixth or seventh on the concerns that people have on a day-to-day -day because they're what worried about getting up, going to work, paying the bills, getting their kids educated, so forth. Let's go back to the 25 to 30 mega donors that, um, that it, they're estimated to be running our politics here. Who are they? Are these institutions as in mega donors or are you talking about 25 to 30 individual Americans? These are basically individual Americans who have, who basically are very rich or in, or the head of corporations and are able to to convert personal resources or their corporate treasuries over into political contributions. It's it's not far from saying that it could be the Amazons of the world or the or the um, the Elon Musks of the world 
you know, who are who are pumping this money into the system. But I don't have the list in front of me. But if we were to sort of look it up here, we could go to the FEC and come up with a list of the largest donors. We could come up with the list of of the individuals who have been bankrolling the Democrats and Republicans. And oftentimes these are individuals who are billionaires and who are attached to or in control of large corporate treasuries. Are any of them foreigners? They can't be foreigners. They're not supposed to be. Uh, um, foreigners are not supposed to be able to um, make political co- contributions to candidates in the United States. And there are there are some restrictions on on them expending some resources. But the main thing is that foreigners could could expend resources um, in general to try to, let's say, uh, take out commercials and ads. They just can't give what money to candidates. Well, yeah, so they can't directly give money, but they can do a lot. For example, I, I hear in the news that uh, some of uh, Mr. Musk's biggest uh, investors uh, for the Twitter deal are from Saudi Arabia. This is not about Saudi Arabia. Yeah. It could be any other country. It could be Switzerland. Okay. It's just when you have when you become a big investor in a major political megaphone in the U.S., yeah. then you're sort of impacting everything you right? are and this is one of the problems with our campaign finance laws that these individuals sh- could not make direct contributions um they're not supposed to be expending money to try to influence elections but if they're now investors in corporations yeah how do you sort out um the fact that it's foreign money versus domestic money or something like that um, yeah. it's not yeah. easy to sort this out i don't want to quite say it's almost like a money laundry but it's a little bit like a money laundry Interesting. I want to ask you a question, and it truly is a question for my own edification. I don't necessarily have a side. I'm I'm going to share this sort of issue based on my own life experience. Uh, Me, my family, extended family, we all have IDs, you know, driver's license, passports. Forget passport, just driver's license. Why is voter ID issue a big political controversy? Doesn't everyone have? Yeah, yes. Well, if first off, put it in contrast here. If we were to go to almost any other of our peer democracies across the world, let's say mm-hmm. a Great Britain or France, there's an ID that you need to have to be able to vote. Okay. Oh, so they require it. They require, yeah, yeah. I just want to say, yeah, okay. The reason why, the reason, but the reason why it's a problem here. There's several reasons for the the problem with voter ID. Back in 2008, I did an article. And I said that we are on the verge of the coming second great disenfranchisement in American history. Um, oh, wow. the, yeah, um, you know, America is a story of two different things. It's the gradual expansion of franchise over time from the point of 1787, or except unless you were white Anglo-Saxon Protestant male and a property owner, uh, you couldn't, there was only people who could vote to where near universal franchise. But at the same time, there's an ugly side of American history, a partisan effort to suppress the right to vote. After the Civil War, the Republicans wanted to expand the right to vote. Democrats wanted to contrast it. The first great disenfranchisement comes when Reconstruction ends and the era of Jim Crow starts in. Efforts to try to do things such as what? Literacy tests, poll mm-hmm. taxes, and so mm-hmm. forth. The reason why I mention this is that the voter ID is part of now the second great disenfranchisement in American history. It is first the birth of a myth that, as I oftentimes tell people, you have a better chance, and it really works out, 
of buying a Powerball ticket and winning than you can have of showing that voter fraud is a serious problem in American politics. I've looked at every study, credible study on voter fraud. I've worked with the Cronkite School of Journalism. We've mm -hmm. looked at all the statistics. There is no widespread voter fraud. The public somehow is convinced there is. So, so why do we have the voter fraud? It's become a partisan battle, uh, unfortunately, about the fact that uh, right now the Republicans are supporting uh, mostly um, voter ID. Um, and one could argue that partly why they're doing it is because of a concern that they're looking at a demographic time clock, that their core base um, is gradually shrinking. A different demographic of American politics is, is arising. And they may be saying, if we don't do something about it, we got a problem. I don't always believe. In fact, I never argued that demographics are destiny. Demographics are possibilities. But what we're getting at here is that the voter ID, the way it's currently set up, there is evidence that it dissuades people from voting. Think of how, voting so, as a, how so? You need an ID for anything you do. Right. right. But if we think about voting as a cost benefit analysis and not everybody has a voter has a has a um, a photo ID, for example. Um, we huh. know, I'll, I'll start out, for example, that the rate of, of, of having um, driver's licenses is different between white Caucasians and people of color. White Caucasians there, are there are There are studies on this? There are statistics? Yes, there are studies oh, okay. on this. Okay. Yeah, I, uh, uh, that we know that, that there's, there's a gap between white Caucasians and especially African-Americans in terms of having driver's license, which is the most common form of, of ID that we yeah, have in the United course. States. Yeah. Additionally, we know, for example, that if you were being told to somebody, you need a photo ID to vote. Well, in many cases, it's discriminatory against, against poor people. To get a photo ID, you oftentimes need what? You need a, a, a birth certificate, or if you've been naturalized, in the United States, your naturalization papers. Well, how many of us have ready in our back pocket our our photo, rather our um our birth certificate or naturalization papers? If you don't have them, it's going to cost you twenty to twenty five dollars to go get one, um, if not more. A copy of your naturalization papers is well over a hundred dollars. Asking people to now go write for this information, pay for this information, maybe write to another state to get it. Or to show up and now provide this photo ID, what we're doing is that we're burdening people who are who are poor. We are burdening people of color. And so this is where it becomes an issue. I actually made an argument at one point. I said, how about a grand compromise? Mm -hmm. Just get over the divide. Requirement of photo ID in America for everybody to be able to vote. However, all the paperwork, and all the documents to get the photo ID have to be free. The point is the cost of getting the photo ID with the, the class and the racial divide that we know dissuades certain people from being able to vote. I That's see. not the only reason, but that becomes kind of the discriminatory purpose that we see out there with the photo ID. So the Democratic Party and uh, scholars... Uh, actually have data that shows that requiring voter ID will disenfranchise a certain number of people and that, that all that then that becomes a political issue. That's the real it, answer. 
Yeah. That really is the, as the answer. Yes. Correct. Yeah, okay. Uh, let's take a break here. Stay with me and Dr. Schultz as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Dr. Schultz, are we witnessing a new election trend in which U.S. presidential and congressional elections are won not by the majority of voters, but by winners who get a minority of the votes? I'm going to argue we have always been ruled by minorities in the United States. Really? And if we, wow. Yes, I would argue that. I would argue that by institutional design, our political system was always supposed to protect minorities. Now, in some cases, that's good because what? Democracy is supposed to be a majority rule bracketed by minority rights. At the end of the day, as I tell my students, should any majority be able to tell me what book I'm going to read, what God to pray to? No, majorities are not supposed to get um, um, winner take all. Um, our political system was originally designed to do what? It was designed um, as a political compromise, and some people would argue as a concession um, to the slave South to protect slavery, to protect the interests of slaveholders in part. Um, our political system was designed with an electoral college that said that we're not going to let the broad masses vote. We're going to let state legislators pick electors who pick the president of the United States. We were minorities rule over time. We've gradually have expanded the franchise. But what's happened now is that because of the compromises of 1787, when the constitution was written, that we increasingly now are, are sanctioning, I'll say minorities in an unhealthy way. So for example, you know, if we look at the but minorities, you don't mean like ethnic minorities. I don't mean minorities. Racial. I mean, I mean a, a minorities. I mean a, a numerical, a numerical. Yes, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's a good Go clarification ahead, here. Go um, ahead. So think about it. For example, uh, that no matter how populous or lack, every state gets two U.S. senators. California and Wyoming get the same number of senators, even though the gap in population is enormous. Every state is guaranteed at least one House member. And what that does is to favor um, um, a, a um, certain minority interest in our society. And given our polarization, it's going to favor rural interests. It's going to favor, let's say, small state interests and so forth like that. And the reason why this is important is that if we look at our political system as designed, it, it really does in many ways sanction um, a, a minority set of, of voters. Now throw in some things that are not in the Constitution. Look at, for example, the, the filibuster rule in the U.S. Senate. I could be one <laughs> senator, get up and say, I object. And it's going to take 60 votes in the Senate to be able to, to break that. That's powerful, powerful um, minority vetoing. And our system is set up now with, with something like that. It's set up with the fact that it's favoring in a Senate, in a House of Representatives, not necessarily majority population, but it's favoring, let's say, a geographic dispersion of 
of representation. You can literally have presidents elected, as we've seen many times, without getting a majority of the vote. You can have a U.S. Senate elected that does not represent the majority of the population or a House of Representatives elected minority the majority of the population. It's based upon how, how we geographically dispersed representation across the United States. So we're still a, a minorities rule country in many ways, numerical minorities rule country. Um, does, does the issue, uh, of redistricting or gerrymandering play into this at all? It exacerbates a problem. And what I mean by that is let's take a place like, for example, a San Francisco or a Los Angeles, let's say San Francisco or okay. New York. There are blue estate regions, blue regions. Let us say I wanted to try to now draw a seat our congressional seats representing San Francisco in such a way that would be equally competitive between Democrat and Republican. I would have to draw incredibly weird districts that would go way out to who knows where or something like that. Or imagine I wanted to pick, I don't know, rural, let's pick a place like rural Texas. I used to live in Texas at one point, and I wanted rural areas to be competitive Democrat, Republican. Given the fact of, of how, again, we have geographically sorted ourselves out, it would be hard to draw district lines that would really be competitive. What's happening is that gerrymandering is reinforcing or exacerbating the sociological choices and that people have made to sort themselves out across the United States. Would, let us say, eliminating partisan gerrymandering help? It certainly would. But still, at the end of the day, if we've got a bunch of Democrats living in urban areas, Republicans in rural areas, and we've got some competitive suburban areas, tell me how we draw the seats to make them competitive and get around that problem. It would be nearly impossible. I kid with people and say, you want more competitive districts? A bunch of Democrats and Republicans got to move to different places. <laughs> um, this uh, difference... Um between uh, different regions uh, of our country, the sort of a geographical polarization is not new, though. This has been going on, you know, I mean, civil war is the uh, sort ultimate. of the ultimate, ultimate uh, expression right. of that. But this is not new and I don't see a way out of it. I agree. I mean, we again, I go back to something I mentioned before. Race, class, gender, region, religion, generations are the basic conflection, conflict points of American history. And region has always been there. What? The Constitutional Convention. It was what? North versus South. Slave yeah. versus free. Uh, it was at one point, what? The the, the Northeast versus the West. Uh, look, look at voting patterns in the United States. We've got very distinct voting patterns in presidential races across states. And then go within each state. Within each state, urban versus rural. It's it's what? It's blue versus red. I mean, we we are we are so separated and so sorted out, but this has always been the story of America. What there's this myth that we are what? The melting pot. We're not really a melting pot. What's the other analogy? We're more like a mixing pot. We're more like a salad bowl than we are anything else. Um, are you are you saying that is there a temporal factor to what you're saying? Are you saying that about now or just generally ever in our history? Generally generally and ever, but I do think right now we are at one of those points in which 
we are much more polarized than we've been, again, in the last 50 years. Now, the good news, if there is, is that some of this polarization is going to start to end in five to 10 years. Part of the polarization Why? is also overlaid by generational differences, that the silence in the baby boomers um, politically are very different than the millennials and the Gen Zs. And we're undergoing one of the most amazing cohort replacements in American history. And, and how I describe it to my people, to my, my students is to say something amazing is happening in American politics. And I say, what? And I say, baby boomers and silence are exiting the system. And then I say, that's a nice way for saying they're dying out. Um, they're literally dying out. And part of our polarization is across generations. What's happening is rural America is depopulating. The core base for, let us say, um, the old Democratic and old Republican parties are also dying out. Um, and we're seeing them being replaced by a new cohort. What was interesting in 2020, 2020 was the first election in 30 years where the baby boomers were not the majority generation in American history. In 2020 was the beginning of the end of the baby boomer era in American politics. Millennials and Gen Zs are now 37% of the population. And over time, they're going to remake by their size and by their political ideology, the American political landscape. A new political consensus. Is it a given the that they're liberal? Not necessarily. Interesting. Uh, we know, and I've got a book coming out next year on generational politics. For many of them, they are more liberal than the previous generations. But for white male Caucasians, that cohort within the new generations, they have the same politics as their grandfather. They have not changed. Um, oh, wow. So it's a little bit more, little bit more nuanced. But where the new center of American politics may be is either around a new suburban consensus driven by, let's say, um, a more moderate politics, or it could be a, a more leftist politics driven around sort of urban America. It's just not clear where we're going. But just think about one other thing. The American American society, when we look at surveys called like the World Value Survey, which looks at values across the world. In the last 20 years, the United States is the most rapidly secularizing um, um, democracy in the world. That go back to the silent generation born roughly between 1924 and 1945, the baby boomers, 45 to roughly 1960. 95% would say, I believe in God. 95% would they say they are Christian. Among millennials and Gen Z, it's barely half that identify with religion and with Christianity. And I say this because so much of our conflict in America on social issues, it's religious-based. Yeah, look if at abortion. You wouldn't think uh, you wouldn't think that we're becoming a secular company, a country based on what's yeah. what's happened to abortion, right? Right. But but longer term, we're becoming much more secularized. And that's going to be the basis of a new political consensus. When and again, I still want to come back and say demographics are not destiny. Despite what Democrats think, this was Hillary Clinton's mistake in 2016, thinking the clock was on her side. Demographics are possibilities. You still need what? A good message, good candidates, good campaign, et cetera, et cetera. Having said that, the rapid secularization of America, the transformation from a baby boom 
and silent Amer silent generation American politics to millennials and Gen Z opens up the possibility for a new political consensus. Think about it right now. Um, in 10 years, we'll speculate here. Do you think anybody is going to care um, about art in a serious way about legalization of recreational use of marijuana? That issue is over. Um, in 10 <laughs> years, uh, even, even Justice Alito, in the opinion overturning Roe versus Wade, said, Nothing here speaks to the issue of same-sex marriage. Now, Clarence Thomas went off on his direction and had other things. But for the most part, we are seeing some of these issues just exit the political system over the next five to 10 years. New conflicts will emerge, but the intensity of the conflicts greased by religion are going to start to subside. Wow, that's very interesting. Uh, we'll have to follow that and see what happens, as you said, like let's say in a, in a decade. I, right. You could see it coming, yeah. In the minute we have left, I have two questions for you. One, what is the tentative title of your upcoming book next year? Well, the book that I have next year is a book called um, um, "Generational um, Generations in American Politics. It's coming okay. out of the University of Michigan Press. And literally on election day last week, I had another book that came out. And it's called... Um, um, Trumpism, American politics in the age of polytainment. And you, people are saying, polytainment, what are you talking about? It's a word one of my graduate students and I coined about 25 years ago. Politics or polytainment is the world of the merger of politics and entertainment. Oh, wow. And that sums up Mr. Trump's style. Yep. And it's been long in the making. And so that one's already out. You know, through Amazon, Barnes and Noble, et cetera, et cetera. Trumpism, American politics in the age of polytainment. And it talks about sort of what I try to talk about there is what does it mean to live in a world of polytainment of which Trump is the is the figurehead, but not the sole cause of it. But the book also talks about what I call the 10 rules of politics, the 10 successful rules you need to have to run a successful campaign. Next year's book on generations really looks at this question of how does a shift in generations affect American politics? And this will be the first major book in American political science that takes generations seriously. Awesome. They, they both sound very exciting and great reads. Um, in the last minute that we have left, did anything surprise you about this midterm elections? A little bit. At the end of the day, the fact that the Republicans didn't do as well as they thought, it was kind of the mute, the muted red wave, to use the journalist phrase. But on the other hand, did that surprise you? Did, did you not see that coming? I, by the time we got to the summer after Dobbs, I realized it wasn't going to be anywhere near as strong of a way for the Republicans. Because of abortion. Again, going, going back to it again, if you follow political science models, it should have been a cakewalk for Republicans. It should have been a blowout election. But if political science models are correct, there's no point in holding elections. Just make a prediction in, in <laughs> April and, and let the model go. But because candidate quality matters, message matters, um, um, mobilization matters democrats did a very good job mobilizing yeah and they did a great job of mobilizing where it mattered where in those few suburban districts 
across the United States that really decide everything. And what the pollsters missed, and I'm going to pick on Nate Silver in 538 now. Okay. Nate's, everybody loves Nate Silver. Everybody loves 538 and says how great of a predictor he is. Well, there's an exp expression called garbage in, garbage out. His models of prediction are based upon polls. There's a lot of bad polling done out there, just really horrible polls. And he averages those in there to make his predictions. But even among the good polls, the good pollsters miss something really important. Which is? It, it is the generational shift going on in American politics. What's happening is that the older voters are exiting the system. We're replacing with newer and younger voters who are not easy to poll. They never pick up their phone. They never answer their cell phone. Um, they're hard to oh, figure out. Oh, that means I'm a young person because I don't do either of those. <laughs> they're, they're hard to figure out where they are. And the pollsters missed this generational shift that was going on that shifted the content of the electorate in a few critical districts across the United States. That's very interesting. Uh, Dr. Schultz, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you so much, Dr. Schultz. My pleasure. And thanks to the audience. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At History Behind News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at History Behind News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments on Twitter or sending an email to Adele at historybehindnews.com. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with History Behind News, a history podcast for our news.